Well, if you have your Bible, please turn in it with me to Romans chapter 10. We'll be today in verses 4 through 8. Um, so if you don't have a Bible, then you can get one of the black Bibles on the end of each pew. And in that Bible, it's on page 946. And uh, if you don't have your own physical copy of the Bible, um, just encourage you to take that one home with you. It's our gift to you. I'm going to begin back at verse 1 just for some context, but we'll be looking at verses 4 through 8 today. It says this, Romans 10:1, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. And he's speaking, he's speaking specifically about his, uh, his, his fellow Jews, that they would come to faith in Jesus just as he did. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead? But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. And that's where we will go to today. Um, In the early days of when I was first beginning to get on the internet (laughs) as a teenager, this would have been the 1990s. Can you believe that? The 20th century. Uh, one of the first internet memes that I ever saw, even though I never heard the word meme back then, and neither had you, um, was this picture where uh, there, was, there was a picture of a highway, and in the middle of the road, there was a dead animal. And right across that dead animal was a yellow stripe painted down the road, painted over the dead animal, and then it just kept on going. And then underneath the picture, there was the caption, Not My Job. I want to know, um, what is our job? It's very important to know what is our task and what is God's task. Uh, Once you come to understand who God is, and once you come to understand just the rough concepts of the fact that there is this holy God who created us that we are accountable to, There is very, very little in the whole world that's more important to learn after that point than to know what it is that God requires of us and what it is that God does for us. We need to know what is our job and what is not our job, what is God's job instead. What that is, that's talking about what is the law. What is it that is our job? What is it that's required of us, but then also... Even more than that, we need to know what is the gospel. What is it that's God's job that God does for us? That law and that gospel, it's such an important distinction. As we open up our Bibles, as we talk about the things of the Lord, we have these two things that are always in front of us. The law, here is what you are to do, but also the gospel. Here is what has been done for you by God. It's an important distinction, it's a simple distinction, but it's a very neglected distinction, it's a misunderstood distinction 
But it's something that when you understand this, when you understand what is it that's expected of me, but then what is it that is completely the free gift of God, it is so freeing. It's so freeing that God, on the one hand, God has a righteous and holy law. It's what it is that we're supposed to do for him. But on the other hand, he has an even more righteous and even more holy gospel, what it is that God has done for us in Christ. We're going to pick up at chapter 10, verse 4, where we left off last time. And we're going to see this statement where it says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. I'm just going to read that again, because I want us to hear these words, and I want you to also kind of wonder how these words fit together. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now, this verse, anybody who studies the theology of the New Testament, anybody who studies the theology of the Apostle Paul, will agree that Romans chapter 10, verse 4 is a key verse in understanding the, the, the whole gospel in terms of how the Bible presents it, especially in terms of how the Apostle Paul presents it in the books of the Bible that the Holy Spirit used him to write. But at the same time, this verse is kind of hard because of just the words and the grammar. And, and if you look at it, you, you can think about that. There might be a particular way as you read it that you think, well, obviously that's the way that I should read it. But then you start to see some other things where you see the word end, right? Or even some translations would have a different word there than end. I know the NIV has the word culmination there instead of end, but it kind of makes you wonder, what's it talking about by the end? Is it talking about a stopping point? Is it talking about that it's the culmination? Is it talking about that it's the goal? Is it talking about uh, uh, that, that this is um, where it's headed all along? End can mean several things. And, uh, uh, does it mean the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes? Or does it mean the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes? So within the words and within the grammar, there's various ways that people have taken this throughout the years. But I want to submit to you that pretty much every way that you can read this points us to truths that we can see elsewhere in the scriptures about Christ and the redemption that he has given us. What does it mean? Does it mean that Christ has ended the law of Moses? Does it mean that Christ is the point or the culmination of the law? Does it mean that Christ has fulfilled the law? Does it mean that Christ stops the quest to achieve right standing with God by way of rule-keeping? Well, all of those things... All of those things. So let's think first about the fact that Christ is the end of the law. Christ is the end of the law. I hope you're following along on the back of your bulletin. If you don't do that, you might get lost sometimes. That's why we put it there, because people said that they were getting lost. So don't get lost, all right? Um, so if Christ is the end of the law. Does it, so here's the question. When it says that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes, does it mean that Christ has ended the law? Well, we want to say two things to that. One is yes, and the other is no. Okay, What Christ has ended 
and ended not because he, he said that it was pointless or something like that, but he's brought it to its fulfillment in terms of this was temporary and now it's put away. What Christ has ended is the ceremonial and civil regulations in the law of Moses. Right? These were things that did not exist before God gave his laws to Moses at Mount Sinai. And they pointed completely to Jesus. Things like the way that the Aaronic priesthood was to go about their ministry. Things like the particular kinds of animal sacrifices that had to be done at various times. Things like the way that the tabernacle and later the temple needed to be set up in physical earthly form. Things, things like the way that the various uh, washings had to be done and the various kinds of food laws about which animals were clean and unclean. And things about the various sorts of, of uh, you might say, holidays that were to be celebrated. These feast times and, and that sort of thing. All of that, you can say, well, yes, Christ has put an end to that. Not to say that any of it was ever worthless, but to say it was all about him all along. And now that Christ has come and done those things, the way that we celebrate, the way that we obey those passages of Scripture is to put our faith in Jesus who has fulfilled it and has put it away so that we're no longer under those ceremonial obligations. You are no longer under the obligations of circumcision and various things like that. You are no longer under the obligation that we must arrange our government according to the, the judicial laws of Exodus 21 through 24 because now we have no longer a theocracy in terms of Israel being the nation of God, but we now have the kingdom that Jesus has brought in, which he says is not a kingdom of this world. Not a kingdom of this world. We've been brought into the kingdom of heaven with people from every tribe and tongue and nation. So has Jesus put an end to the law? Well, he has in terms of the fact that we no longer have to to do these ceremonial and civil regulations. But at the same time, I also want to say no. Jesus has not brought an end to the law. Let me give you an example. Is there anybody in this room who thinks that now that Jesus has come, you no longer have to obey the rule, you shall not steal? We know that that's the case. We know that that's still in place. What that is, that's part of what we call the moral law of God. It's summarized in the Ten Commandments, but it's, it's where you can see the, this was God's moral expectation. This was God's moral rule for humanity long before Mount Sinai ever came along. And it continues to be his rule for us today. So if we're going to say, well, does, does this Christ is the end of the law, does that mean there's no rule keeping for those who know Jesus? Well, no, it doesn't mean that. It means that in part that Jesus has put away those certain regulations that were temporary under Moses. But at the same time, no, it doesn't mean that he's put away an obligation that we have to obey God. But another thing that you could say when we look at this is that Christ is the point of the law. When it says Christ is the end of the law, well, he's the point. Does it mean that? Well, yes. It means that, that he's the point, he's the culmination, that the law of God and all, everything that's in the writings of Moses, which is the first five books of the Bible, and everything in the entire Old Testament, it's about Jesus. It, 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 this is part of what this is getting at, that it all points to him. That all of the God-breathed words 
in the Old Testament law are pointing to Jesus as our great prophet. That, that all of the ceremonial system in the Old Testament was pointing to Jesus as our perfect priest. That all of the judicial system in the Old Testament was pointing to Jesus as our perfect ruler, as our perfect king. Our prophet, priest, and king, he's the end of the law, partly in terms of the fact that it was all about him all along. The way that Jesus put this in John 5, 46, he said to those who said that they believed the law of Moses, he said, if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. So in that way, he's the point of it. He's the end of the law in terms of being the point of it. But another thing that you can say is that Christ is the end of the law and the fact that he is the doer of the law. He is the fulfiller of the law in fact, in the fact that he actually did it where nobody else did. He said in Matthew 5.17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now there's a lot that we could say about what that means. There's an awful lot. We could spend the whole week, we could spend several weeks talking about what it means that Christ has fulfilled the law and the prophets. But for right now, I just want to say that the most important thing for you personally to know is that Jesus has fulfilled it in terms of obeying it all for you. He has fulfilled it in the fact that he is the only one who has ever lived a life that was righteous according to the law. Never broke the law in any way, in his actions, in his words, or even down in the depths of his heart. None of us could say that, not even close, but he did it. He obeyed perfectly for us. He's earned all of the blessings in the law. Part of what the Old Testament law brought up was that those who obey are entitled to blessings and that those who disobey are entitled to curses. Well, Jesus has fulfilled it even to the point that he earned all of the blessings for us in his perfect obedience and He went to the cross and took all of the curses for disobeying it that we had earned. He fulfilled it. He he earned the blessings. He took the curses. He obeyed in our place. He is our righteousness so that we can say that Christ is our rest from law righteousness or from works righteousness. Where it says not just that he's the end of the law, but the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Does it mean that believing in Jesus stops the quest to achieve right standing with God by way of rule keeping? Yes, absolutely, absolutely. The human quest, the religious quest, the idea that we could stand before God and say, but really God, I'm a pretty good person. Here's the evidence that I think my good outweighs my bad. All of that is just thrown away. Every ground of boasting is thrown away when we look to Jesus and say, I couldn't do it. Jesus, who would look at us and say, come to me, all you who are weak and heavy laden. Heavy laden because there is all of that pressure to obey, 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 or else. But he says, come to me and I will give you rest. For I am gentle and lowly in spirit. He is the one who gave us that because he 
is Christ our righteousness by faith alone. This is what he said. He is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone. No, to everyone who believes, it says. To everyone who believes. Here's what it says in Acts 13, verse 38. This was one of the sermons of Paul. He said, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, that's through Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. You can't be free by the law. You can't be free by rule keeping. If you think to yourself that by laws, by rule keeping, by being a good person, that you can be right with God, you are enslaved. But as we come to Jesus, as we believe in him, he frees us. He frees us to know that we are already accepted and right with God. Not by what we could do, but by what he's done for us. That we would receive not by works, but by faith. And in that freedom, we're then free to live for God without fear of punishment. Without fear that he's going to get us if we mess up a little. We, we have in Christ the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And so that's the call is to come and believe in Christ for righteousness. I'm going to read you a big chunk from Romans chapter 3, verse 20. He summed this up already in the book of Romans, and I just want you to hear this. He says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by works, by faith, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Listen to this. The law of God is good, but it can't give you grace. Jesus, in the gospel, gives you grace. That's why it says in John 1.17, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean that God did something mean or bad when he gave the law through Moses. It was good and it was right for God to give the law through Moses. We need the law. We need to know where we are wrong. We need to know what is right to do and what is wrong to do. We need the law to train us and also to show us that we need grace. But the law can't give us grace. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. God sent the law in Moses. He sent the gospel in Jesus Christ. Let's think about what these two things are. As we get to verse 5, this is one of the clearest places, even though the word gospel is not going to be contained in these verses, this is one of the clearest places where you see in the Bible the distinction between the law and the gospel, between on the one hand 
You have, here is what God would require of you. And then on the other hand, here is what God has done for you. It's two different things. But let's think first of all about that law in verse 5 of Romans 10. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. Now, in a way, that sounds pretty nice, doesn't it? It almost sounds like... Well, it almost sounds like another religion because this is kind of what you, you might hear from really any man-made religion is the idea, well, do the right things and you'll have fullness of life here and eventually earn yourself eternal life for heaven. This idea, well, do, do the commandments and you'll live. What's he talking about? When he says Moses writes about that, well, what he's, what he's referencing is Leviticus 18, verse 5. This is Moses quoting God. God says this in Leviticus 18.5, You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. Now, that's true. That's out of the mouth of the Lord. If you do the statutes and the rules of God, you will live. This actually goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. That was exactly what was established between Adam and Eve and God. What we call this, in theological terms, we call it the covenant of works. This is where God said to Adam, you are free to eat of any tree in the garden, but I have one rule for you, Adam. The fruit on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil does not belong to you. Do not steal it. Do not eat it. You have one rule. Obey perfectly, and you will live. Disobey, and you will surely die. You see what's going on there? It's the covenant of works. It's an agreement between man and God. Obey perfectly, and you will live. Don't obey perfectly. Break a rule. You will die. Why is that? It's because God is holy. And when we say God is holy, that means a lot more than what usually comes to our mind when we hear that. We hear the word holy all the time. We hear it get thrown around with various other kinds of words. We see it written on the front of our Bible. We can dismiss it so easily, this word holy. But what that means is that God is absolutely set apart in perfection. This God who is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in all of his attributes, the God who made us, the God that we're accountable to, is holy. And when the people in the scriptures begin to have a glimpse of God's holiness, like Isaiah in the temple in Isaiah chapter 6, or like John in the fishing boat when he comes to an understanding of who Jesus is who's standing in front of him, You know what people do in the scriptures when they start to have an understanding of the holiness of God? They fall down like they're dead. And they cry out for mercy. Because they know that they are sinners in comparison to this holy God. So if you read this verse that says, the person who does the commandments shall live by them, and you think to yourself, okay, that's how I'm going to do it. You don't get the holiness of God. You don't get it. It is absolutely true that if you obey the statutes and rules of God, you will live. 
and not die. That is true. There's a problem, though, and the problem is you. The problem's not God. The problem is not the covenant of works that says, do it and live, disobey and die. The problem is us. Ever since Adam came and did his sin in the garden, we have been born, lumped in with him, united to Adam. We've been born guilty. You know who sinned in the Garden of Eden? The entire human race, which includes you, even if you think to yourself you're exempt somehow. No, we're, we're not. We sinned there. We came guilty of that sin. We came with our own sin nature that flowed out of that with all kinds of evil desires, a variety of evil desires that's a little bit different for every person, just like this evil fingerprint that we're all born with plays out in all kinds of ways that we want to dismiss, that we want to say, well, that's just my personality. That's just who I am. And it's ugly. And it goes against the law of God. And so if we're going to say to ourselves, okay, the person who does them will live by them, I'm going to try that route. You are trying to earn yourself salvation by the covenant of works, and you can't do it, and it's going to kill you. Here's what it said back in, in, in well, let me read you Galatians 3.12. It says, the law, of, the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. It's a problem if you don't do them. Or Romans 2.13, for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. There's a problem there. You can be a great, great hearer of the law. But when God searches your heart, he knows the deeds. Not just the ones that work out on the outside. Not just the ones that end up flowing out of your mouth and your words but all the way down in the depths of your heart. You can, you can be a great hearer of the law. You can be someone who says, I know my Bible forward and backward. Bring me any situation in your life, and I'll tell you ten Bible verses that apply to it and exactly what you should do. Maybe you're even giving them great advice. There was a lot of people in Jesus' day who could do just that, who he said will not see the kingdom of heaven. He called them whitewashed tombs because on the outside, they had everything together. They looked beautiful, but God could see past where man could see. God could see into the heart. So when we see things in the Bible like the doers of the law will be justified, do you know what that shows us? You can't be justified by doing the law because you haven't. If you want to know whether that's the case for you, I just want to. Hold up for you today as a mirror on your own soul the very basics of the law. They're called the Ten Commandments, the moral law of God. If you're going to try to go to heaven by being a good person, if you're going to say, well, here's what I can present to God and show that I'm, I ought to be counted as right in his sight, well, Jesus summed it up, first of all, in two commandments. He said, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is, is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. You may think to yourself, oh, I'm off the hook. All I have to do is convince myself that I love God and that I love people and I'm fine. Well, Jesus said that that is a summary of the whole law. 
which means if you're going to love God and love your neighbor, as Jesus said, it's not just whether or not you feel like you do. It's let's compare your love to the commandments of God. He said that this is a summary of the Ten Commandments, which are a summary of all of the law of God, all of the moral law of the expectations that God would have on us. So let's think about those. I've got, I think, 13 sermons on the Ten Commandments that you can go and look up, and I'm tempted to preach all 13 of them to you right now. But let's just, let's just run through these real quick. First commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Seems simple enough, right? You might hear that and think, okay, I'm pretty sure that I don't worship Vishnu or Allah or anything else. And, so, and, and, and I'm pretty sure, you know, I've heard before that this applies to the idols of my heart, but I think that even though I have a bunch of those, that God's still number one. So there's no other God before him. Do you understand what it means when he says before me? It means he can see everything. He can see everything. He means there must be absolutely no other object of worship in your heart or your life at all. He must be your only object of worship ever, from the time you're born to the time you die. So right there, we've already learned that we're breakers of the law, haven't we? Second commandment, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. You know what that means? It's not, it's not just another way to put the first commandment. It's about how we would worship and avoiding all of the temptations to worship according to our own design and to worship what we can see instead of the God that we hear by his word. It, it, what that means, the second commandment, that you, you must worship according to God's instructions and you must never make up any of your own method of worship and you must never get worship wrong ever. Third commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Now, some of you would say, well, okay, I, I don't use curse words anymore. Some of you need to stop. But you may say to yourself, well, I don't use curse words anymore, so I don't, I don't break that commandment. Well, it's about so much more than that. It's about misrepresenting God in any way or failing to mean it when we use his name. You must... According to that commandment, never misrepresent God in any way. Never say, God told me, when he didn't. Never fail in any way to have a proper reverence for God's names, titles, attributes, ordinances, word, or works. As he's laid them out, everything that he uses to reveal his character, you must have a perfect reverence for all of it, out of love for him all the time. Fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. Do you know how much it would benefit you and this church if we would all take this commandment seriously? This commandment means that you must never, it says six days you shall labor, it means you must never in any way be the least bit lazy about your work. It means that in those six days that God has given you to do your work, that you must do it. And that you need to always keep in mind throughout the week how you're going to devote that one day of the week to God. 
It means that you must always and in every way plan your life around God's schedule and never in any way plan God's schedule around yours. Now, some of you think that because I just said that, that I am the Pharisee that Jesus spoke against. I'm not going to give you a pharisaical list of rules about how to obey that commandment, but I am going to tell you this. Jesus said, as he was dealing with the Pharisees, the Sabbath was not made, or excuse me, man was not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was made for man. And when we say, no, thank you, God, that is a breaking of his holy commandments. The fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother. You know what that means? You must always and wholeheartedly submit, first and foremost, to God as your father. And you must always and wholeheartedly submit to the authorities, the human authorities that God has placed over you in all of the ways that are appropriate according to the Bible. And you must always, when God gives you authority over others, you must always use that authority in a way that shows love toward those people and that honors God. The sixth commandment, you shall not murder. That means that you must never in any way do anything that tends toward the devaluing of the life of another human being. The seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. That means that you must never do anything that in any way fails to honor God's perfect design for lifelong marriage between a man and a woman. You must never do anything that in any way places sexual desire outside of that marriage relationship. The Eighth Commandment, you shall not steal. You know what that means? It means that you must never in any way do what unjustly hinders someone's prosperity. Or the Ninth Commandment, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, which most people think that the Ninth Commandment says you shall not lie but that's only a very small part of it. It has to do with loving our neighbor with our words, even the neighbor who doesn't love us with their words. This means that you must never lie, you must never gossip, you must never assume bad motives about others, you must never in any way be prejudiced against another person's good reputation, not even if that person is on the wrong side of an issue, not even if that person is a public figure. The Tenth Commandment, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. You know what that means? It's a commandment that you must be content in your heart. You must be content always with what God has given you. And you must be happy for your neighbor always when you see what God has given your neighbor and you must never envy others. You must never be upset about their prosperity. You must never be happy about their losses. You must never think in any way that God has withheld from you what he ought to have given you. Now, I'm just giving you a very, very, very brief summary there of the moral law of God. And I want to tell you, I think if you're being honest with yourself and with God, and with the scriptures that are in front of us, I think you probably already know that you are not righteous according to the law. But I just want to drive home a little bit that this is not just in the things that we would do externally. It's not just in our deeds. It's not even just in our words that come out of our mouths that God expects us to obey. It's, it's within our hearts. 
This is so much of what Jesus preached about in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, is that the law is a matter of the heart, first and foremost. The heart. He went to the commandment that sounds the very easiest to keep. You shall not murder. And he says, have you hated your brother in your heart? If so, then you're guilty before God of a breaking of this commandment. All all, all of those who would say, well, I'm righteous because I've never broken the seventh commandment. I've never committed adultery. Jesus says, have you ever looked lustfully upon a woman? You're a breaker of the commandment. Jesus points out, God points out, it goes all the way back to the very beginning of Scripture that he holds us accountable for our hearts, our thoughts, the thoughts of our minds, the emotions of our hearts what it is that we love, what it is that we hate, and so much more. He holds us accountable for the desires of our hearts. The Bible speaks about sinful desire. And so anybody who has some kind of an idea that they can come before God and present their own deeds and words and hearts and be proven righteous is absolutely fooling themselves. And it said so in the Old Testament too. In Joshua 24, the people come to Joshua after they've crossed into the promised land. And the people commit. They say, therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. But Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. I want you to hear this today. I want you to hear this. I'm going to speak first of all to those who think would imagine in this room, it's a small percentage, but there may be some, those who think that they are a good person. I want you to know what the Bible says. You are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. You need to get a better view of the holiness of God so that you would boast in Christ alone. You need to put your faith not in yourself, but in Jesus. But I want to speak also in this to those of us who already know some very, very, very painfully so that we are not good before God in ourselves. I want you to know that there is no expectation from God that you're going to come to him and present the fruit of your heart and your life as the basis for going to heaven. This is a a, a trap that believers can fall into sometimes. They think, okay, I know that the Bible says that if I'm a genuine believer, that that's going to change my life. That's true. But sometimes believers, because of that truth, will despair over the fact that they are not yet perfected. You need to know that you you will not be perfected until you are in the presence of Christ. You will still have this body of death You will still deal with the old self. You will still need to put to death what is earthly in you on a daily basis. You will still need to put off the old man and to put on Christ every day. You will still need to do that. So I hope that as you see this, that you're going to let go of that. The righteousness that is based on the law says the person who does the commandment shall live by them. If you're starting to get in your head, Christian, the way I'm going to live, the way that I'm going to know that I have eternal life is because my fruit is perfect. Put that away right now. Don't live in the covenant of works. Come, remember, 
live in, rejoice in Christ, in the covenant of grace. Come out of the law, come into the gospel. The law is going to kill you. This is what it said back in Romans 7.10, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. I just want you to hear this. It is impossible to live by the commandments. It is impossible to have eternal life by way of ordering your life according to God's law. It's impossible unless your name is Jesus. Okay, I want you to hear this. Jesus did it. You can't do it. Jesus did it. Jesus didn't come into the world burdened with the sin nature that we came into the world with. He came in born of a virgin, the, the new start, both fully man, but completely without sin, and fully God, tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. All of those things that we just talked about, how it is impossible for you to obey, Jesus did it. In all of his words, in all of his deeds, in all of his heart, he did it for you. That's the good news. And that takes us to verses 6 through 8, where we, we've looked at the law, but we need to look at the gospel. We've looked at what it is that God says are his righteous rules for us, his good rules, but we need to look and see what is God's good news. And it's put in a way that's a little bit hard to grasp right at first, but I don't think it's going to be hard to grasp for very long. So we're, we're going to look at verse 6. It says, but the righteousness based on faith, okay, that means what, it, what we just talked about from verse 4, the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. This is saying you can be right with God by faith in Jesus. And it says here's what that looks like. That righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. What he's doing here is he's he's quoting from Deuteronomy. He goes back and he says, look even at the law of Moses. Look even back there, and you're going to see here the way that not only has God set up a law that's, that's good, that tells you here's what's required of you, but God has taken the initiative to bring himself near to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. He quotes, first of all, in Deuteronomy 9.4, where he says, do not say in your heart. And in Deuteronomy 9.4, it goes on, after the Lord your God has, has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. I think the reason Paul quotes that verse, do not say in your heart, is because that's a, a verse right there in the book of Deuteronomy that says, it is not your righteousness that will deliver you. It's me. I am the one who will deliver you, not you. And then he goes on and he quotes from Deuteronomy 30. In Deuteronomy 30, here's, here's what it says. It says, 
He's talking about God's rules, God's law. He says, it is not in heaven that you should say who will ascend into heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. Paul kind of takes this concept of the fact that God has not left people alone to just grasp about and try to figure out what's right and what's wrong. He came near and brought his righteous rules in words to the people right there in their mouths and in their hearts so that they could know this, that even that, even the giving of the law was a gracious act from God. But Paul says if it was a giving of the law, if the giving of the law was a gracious act, how much greater is the giving of the gospel? I want to remind you what it said in John 1.17, for the law came through Moses, was given through Moses. That's a good thing. But a better thing, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And so if it was a gracious thing for God to bring these rules near, it's an even more gracious thing what God has done to bring Christ near, to bring Jesus as our salvation. And so that's how how Paul quotes this. He says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down. He's saying here, don't say, what can I do to earn my salvation? God already sent his son. You don't have to go up there and get him. God already sent him. And then he says, says, but uh, or verse 7, don't say who will descend into the abyss. And that abyss, he's, he's kind of quoting from what Deuteronomy says about the sea. And that's that concept of the sea in the Bible is this abyss and this, this place of chaos. And you don't know what creatures are under there, or when the waves are going to come up and eat you. He, it, it, but he says, don't say who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. What the point here is, God's already taken care of this for you. God already sent Christ from heaven. Christ has already gone to the cross. Christ has already died and been buried. And Christ has already risen from the dead. And any any feeling that we have, I have to accomplish my salvation. This says, no, don't look to law about what you must do for God. Look to gospel about what God has already done for you in Jesus Christ. You can't go get Jesus from heaven. You can't bring him up from the dead, but God already did it for you, sinner. He did it for you, sinner. He did it. And that's why he says in, in verse, verse 8, but what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. I'm just going to read you the next two verses. We're going, to, we're going to talk about these next time, but I just want to read them to you when it says in your mouth and in your heart. He takes those words from Deuteronomy and he explains here, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is not about what we would do for God. It's about what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. This is saying God is the doer of our salvation, not us. Just like he said all the way back in the Old Testament in Isaiah 46, verse 12, Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. I bring my righteousness near. It is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. 
I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. He says, I'm going to do it. Guys, this is what you need to know. God has a holy law. God says, here is your job. Here is what you were supposed to do. Look at the Ten Commandments. See that you need to align your life to what it says for them to do. But at the same time, know that you, it is not your job to achieve righteousness by those commandments. Achieving righteousness is my job for you. That's the gospel. The law is God's good rules. The gospel is God's good news. The rules say do this and live. The gospel says Christ has done it. Receive this by faith, what he's done, and live. It's not offered to you to buy. It's not offered to you to earn. It's offered to you to receive as a free gift. And so I just want to end with this verse that was read for us at the beginning of the service by Bob. Isaiah 55, 1. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. And he's saying to us, come and receive what it is that God freely gives. Come to the water, come know the living water of Jesus Christ, pour it out and receive him by faith. And don't walk as though, Christian, just one more time, don't walk. Don't think as though it's your righteousness that's going to finally prove that, yes, I really was good enough. No, it's the righteousness of Christ. It's what God has done for you. He brings his righteousness near. Let's pray. Father, thank you for what you've given us in the scriptures. I thank you that um, you have given us your law. We need to know from the law what it is that's right and what it is that's wrong. Lord, it's, it's written on our conscience, but it's so twisted there by our sin. We, we need it in writing, and you've graciously given it to us. God, we need those rules to restrain evil. We need those rules to instruct us in what's right, but Lord, those rules also show us, like a mirror on our hearts, that we can't be righteous by works. God, I thank you that you haven't just given us rules, but you've given us grace and truth. You've given us good news of what has already happened, that Jesus has died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Lord, I pray that if there are any who are apart from Jesus, that you would bring them near, that you would turn them in faith to Christ today. I pray if there are any of us who have faith in Christ, who are starting to slip into a mindset of trying to to prove our righteousness before you, Lord, give us the grace and the freedom and the joy to depend on the righteousness of Christ alone, even as you sanctify us. Lord, I pray that you would lead us to the waters that are without price uh, and let us drink deeply of the righteousness of Christ by faith. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.